Welcome to the Pentagon Labyrinth, the podcast of the Center for Defense Information, brought to you by the Strauss Military Reform Project at the Project on Government Oversight. We're going to shift gears and look at a different topic for us. We're going to talk about military advisors. While combat troops tend to get the majority of the attention in the coverage of our wars overseas, combat advisors tend to be an overlooked cadre of troops that perform a key role in our overseas campaigns that can affect both the duration and the successful outcome of them. The United States has a long history with military advisors. During the Revolutionary War, soldiers in the Continental Army were on the receiving end of this mission when the Marquis de Lafayette and Baron von Steuben and others worked with them to increase their effectiveness on the battlefield. American forces have been advising foreign militaries since the early 20th century in places like the Philippines, the Caribbean, Korea, Vietnam, and more recently in Iraq and still in Afghanistan. In spite of the frequency of these missions taking place, the services have only recently taken steps to create permanent advisor institutions. We send military advisors to conflict zones to help train the host nation's forces. The idea is to build up their capacity to the point where they're able to handle their own security without assistance. The United States, unfortunately, does not have an enviable track record in this. We spent two decades trying to build up the capacity of the South Vietnamese Army, And by and large, American Army advisors worked to mold the Vietnamese Army in their own image, meaning we were in effect building them up to fight the Soviets in the full of the gap, rather than preparing them to deal with the insurgency in their midst. It's difficult to say we've done a better job in Iraq and Afghanistan. This is unfortunate, because if we can crack the nut on the advising mission, then we might be able to successfully conclude a conflict before it reaches voting age. We're going to have much more on this issue in the months to come, but for now, we can talk about one person's experience as a military advisor. Captain Chip Nalen, United States Marine Corps, spent seven months as an advisor in Afghanistan with the Georgian Army. His experiences, both good and bad, provide insight to the role military advisors play and a few lessons we would do well to learn. When we arrived in Afghanistan September of 2014, it was before the Resolute Support mission began. So we still fought under the NATO ISAF, the International Security Assistance Force. But even though we had begun the Resolute Support mission, we still had that feel of everything's kind of fake. And it started off as a joke, but the similarities between what we felt we were dealing with in terms of kind of the absurdity of our situation, the, the parallels with George Orwell's 1984 and the Ministry of Truth were just too uncanny to not address. But in 2014, it was still a joke. It didn't become reality until 2015 when the Resolute Support Mission began. But the new Ministry of Truth is, is directly a reference to Orwell 1984 and his ministry of truth and what we dealt with, with the absurdity and the duplicitous nature of what we were being fed rhetorically from our higher headquarters. Can you provide an example of that? Yeah, you bet. Once we got into 2015, I referred to it as our new ministry of truths version of Newspeak. 
So what Orwell talked about as the lies that we told by we, I mean, the, his ministry of truth, where they were actively seeking to deceive, we fell under similar rhetorical absurdities. And some of that doublespeak or, or newspeak, or excuse me, doublethink or newspeak, uh, a prime example is when 2014 rolled into 2015, we were all of a sudden told that anytime you as in, we were U.S. Marines advising Georgians, but we were ultimately the ones submitting the concept of operations, the CONOPs up to higher headquarters to be approved. Anytime you send those CONOPs up, you have to phrase them in terms of U.S. forces supporting Afghan forces in the lead. But that was ridiculous. The Afghans just weren't in the lead. They didn't have the capability either in terms of the ability to execute the mission or more importantly, the ability of their national strategic logistics structure to support them with the material they needed. They didn't have the ability to execute that. So we were told, hey, yeah, it's 2015. And I know December 31st, 2014 and January 1st, 2015, nothing different is happening. But oh, by the way, now you have to say that you are supporting the Afghans when in reality, nothing has changed. We were the ones executing our base defense mission and we're bringing Afghans with us to keep us safer because having locals in that environment, they recognize the culture, they understand the threats that we certainly don't, but in terms of executing the mission, they couldn't have done it, but we still had to submit our CONOPs as if, yes, the Afghans are in fact in the lead, when in reality that was nonsense, they weren't in the lead. So that was something that frustrated us. Uh, but I would say the, the most absurd and the most frustrating was the idea that combat operations has ended. So we were told when 2015 began that, hey, this is the end of combat operations. Nonsense. We still dealt with the same threats day in, day out, both outside the wire with suicide vests, IEDs, small arms attacks inside the wire with regular rocket attacks on January 1st, 2015 that we did under the ISAF mission on December 31st, 2014. But we were told that, no, you're no longer in combat. When in reality, the guys outside the wire in harm's way were facing the same threats that they were the day prior. They just weren't allowed to proactively target and proactively respond to threats that they would have prior to that. And that was a tremendous frustration of being told by our higher headquarters that, hey, due to some arbitrary decision, you are no longer in combat. But for us on the ground, in reality, we were. We've dealt with the same threats day in, day out, but weren't equipped in terms of authorities and permissions to deal with those threats appropriately. Okay. So a lot of people when they think about Afghanistan, they think about American companies, battalions, regiments going over and conducting combat. But you went over as an advisor and you went over as an advisor for the Georgians who were in turn advising and working with the, the Afghans. Uh, let's, let's delve back a little bit about how you got selected to become an advisor. So 
the Georgian deployment program is what the Marines refer to as a program of individual augments. So it's a mission that doesn't necessarily fit one of the traditional Marine Corps units. It's not an infantry battalion mission. It's not a regiment mission. It's not something the air wing will deal with. So rather than send an organic mission, what they do is pull together Marines from a bunch of different jobs, bunch of different military occupational specialties into a designated team to serve as the combat advisors for that. So the way I was selected, my mom being a proud mom likes to say it was because you know, I was the best Marine in the Marine Corps. So surely I was the one to go and support this mission. In reality, I was in an infantry battalion and due to time and grade happened to be the junior captain of the battalion. So my battalion XO pulled me in and said, hey, Chip, we have this great opportunity for you. You're going to go to Afghanistan. I said, that's ah, great, sir. Sounds good. Is it a, is it a choice? Uh, he said, no, nah, not really. You're, you're going to Afghanistan. So, hey, roger that, sir. So the way I went was because anytime one of these specifically task-organized individual augment missions formed, the task pushed down from higher headquarters in the Marine Corps isn't for specific names. It's for, hey, we need X number of people from this particular job, Y number of people from this particular job, so on and so forth. And I happen to be an infantry officer who was also the junior captain of my battalion. So I was selected for that, not due to some tremendous proficiency, but because I happen to be the junior guy in the battalion. But it worked out to be a phenomenal opportunity because despite the massive frustrations that I dealt with over there, it was also an incredible opportunity to have a level of independence that I wouldn't have had operating within a conventional infantry battalion because we were really what we would call OFP, you're on your own effing program. Uh, and that gave us the ability to operate in such a way where we planned and executed our missions and that was really it. Now. I say that within the context of the tremendous frustrations and limitations I had once we actually arrived there, but still had the opportunity to plan and execute our own missions, which for me as a junior captain, I had a level of freedom of independence, freedom of planning, freedom of execution that I certainly wouldn't have had in a conventional infantry battalion. Okay, so once you were selected, uh, you get pulled out of your battalion, you get pulled out of the job that you were doing. What was the next step? Where'd you go? The next step... I was in Camp Pendleton, so I, I can't speak to how things would have worked in 2MEF over in Camp Lejeune, but at least with 1MEF over in Camp Pendleton, I went from my infantry battalion in one portion of base down to what we call ATC, the Advisor Training Cell. And to be honest, I don't even know if it still exists. This was five years ago now, and so many things are transient depending on funding in the Marine Corps, but at the time it was the organization within 1MEF that was tasked with training these individual augments. The people who aren't part of a conventional unit, but are going to form a specifically task-organized team to serve as advisors to the Georgians, the Afghans, the Iraqis, to whomever. So we went to advisor training seller, ATC, where I came down and then we had a group of other Marines coming from all over Camp Pendleton and a couple actually from 20M Palms. And we all met and hadn't had any prior experience working together, but were told, oh, by the way, you guys are now on an organic team. You're the Georgian deployment program. We happen to be rotation 14. So you are 
GDP rotation 14, and you're gonna spend the next four months training in Camp Pendleton, then you're gonna to deploy to Georgia, then Afghanistan with the Georgians. But our first step was actually going down to ATC Advisor Training Cell, where we would receive a tailored pre-deployment training program, or PTP, specifically for individuals who are part of this Georgian deployment program. Okay, since you and I both went through training at ATC and in Camp Pendleton, you wanna go ahead and describe what the facilities were? Because I think this kind of tells, uh, uh, tells a story in and of itself. Yeah, it, it was a series of trailers within some barbed wire fence. So it wasn't what you would think of as luxurious or dealing with an overflow of funding. It was a kind of a very visual representation of where the Marine Corps and I think the Department of Defense writ large prioritized advisors because we're surrounded, we're in the Delmar portion of Camp Pendleton. So it's a stunningly beautiful place right in the Pacific and the actual permanent structures there are these beautiful buildings. And we had some fencing and some trailers that were really a product of, hey, we don't know how this is gonna last, if it's gonna be a long-term thing, so go play away from the other your people in the sandbox and uh, here's your toy that you can play with. And it was a group of trailers and that almost brought a level of pride to us too of, ah, fine, we don't need all the, we don't need all the, the whiz bang shiny stuff. We'll make do with what we have. And that was kind of the mindset that we had going into that of may not have the resources, but we'll figure it out. And so when when you showed up, you, you get the training plan, uh, how much support did did the the people at ATC and the people at the First Marine Expeditionary Force provide as you were going through that? So I'll I'll take a step back with that. At the time, it was before I was married. I was living at a house with another Marine guy who happened to have done a deployment and had gone through ATP or excuse me ATC himself, but for an advisor with the Afghan National Police. But bottom line, he had gone through ATC before, so he gave me some gouge and background on what to expect. And the way he explained to me, he said, ATC, they won't, they won't do your job for you. They won't prepare you for deployment. But if you care enough, they'll go to hell and back to make sure you have the tools you need to succeed. So with that said, if we had gone in there and said, hey, we want to go be drinking beers and eating cheeseburgers on the beach at noon, we could have done that. But I had a boss who he and I spoke together and me as the operations officer and him as the, the officer in charge, we figured out early on of, hey, we're going to kind of be alone and afraid deployed, so let's make the most of this time together. So we sat down and said, all right, we want to absolutely optimize our time at ATC. So I sat down with the operations officer at ATC and explained our vision and my boss's intent for what we wanted to do. And we absolutely made the most of our time there. We had phenomenal training, not because ATC and their instructors said you need to have this training, but because they said, we are here to support you. And if you want this training, we will do whatever you need to ensure that you have the support necessary. 
Uh, and that's what it came down to is I happen to have a boss and he and I were on the same page. So we worked very hard to put together a training plan and ATC worked harder to ensure that the logistical needs to meet that training plan were met. But had we gone in there and said, you know, we're not too into this, we'll figure it out down the line, we could have been out of there at noon every day. Right. So in the book, you, you write about this workup training and you, you talk a lot about the com- combat marksmanship program and uh, driver training, if I remember correctly, uh, all those kind of tactical, kind of basic Marine Corps things. Can you walk us through, kind of describe how you would uh, how you spent most of the time when you were in Camp Pendleton? Yeah, and I guess it comes down to a almost philosophical approach about the difference of being with an infantry battalion and being with an advisor team. With an infantry battalion, in addition to the infantry Marines, you have all the supporting functions. You have intel, you have logistics, you have everything you need to support. I shouldn't say everything, but the preponderance of what you need to support yourself downrange. So there's redundancy built in. With a small team of advisors, there's no redundancy. You don't have that fallback where if you can't do your job, you know there are four other Marines who can cover for you and kind of compensate for those inadequacies. So we knew going in that all of the Marines on our team had to be proficient in the fundamentals of going out and conducting combat patrols. So that was the philosophy one where nobody can hide. Nobody can hide their inadequacy and their incompetence. So we went in with the mindset of we don't know exactly what we're going to be doing. Because while we're at ATC, we still weren't sure what we were going to be doing in Afghanistan. But we know we're going into combat. So we outlined a couple key priorities that all of the guys from logistics officers, communications officers, intel officers, infantry officers, senior enlisted, junior enlisted, everyone across the rank spectrum, across the MOS spectrum, you are going to be proficient in these skills. And what it came down to is you are going to be proficient in communications. Because at the time I was an infantry captain, but when I was going to be out on patrol, I wouldn't have a tremendous backdrop of communications Marines who could trouble check my radio for me. So we knew that everybody has to be proficient in the fundamentals of communications and loading crypto, troubleshooting comm, making that happen. Fire support. Similarly, we weren't going to have an artillery battery supporting us. We would have an Anglo-Go detachment in country, but we still need to be proficient in those basics of just calling for fire. And then really um, the one that saved lives, we had to be proficient in combat lifesaving. So regardless of who you were, what your job was, what your rank was, you were going to be able to know how to operate your comm equipment, know how to call for fire, and know how to conduct combat lifesaving. So those were the things that defined everything we did from our time in Camp Pendleton in Virginia Beach with the Marine Corps Security Cooperation Group with the Basic Advisor Course to our time in Georgia. Everything we did focused on ensuring that we could communicate, call for fire, and save lives. Okay. How much time did you spend during during the workups, during your time at ATC, during your time at Virginia Beach, learning how to actually be an advisor? Really, the bulk of that time was in Virginia Beach at the Marine Corps Security Cooperation Group. So we went through what was called the Basic Advisor Course. 
it was a four-week program where in addition to certain hard skills we learned what is referred to in the curriculum as threat weapons so we learned how to work with different soviet weapons be the georgians would be working with some the afghans we worked with certainly would be as well so there were some hard skills that we learned but the preponderance of our time in virginia beach at the basic advisor course was focused on what we would call soft skills so things as seemingly straightforward as speaking through an interpreter and i've used the saying before and I'll go to the grave saying it. Being a good Marine does not necessarily mean you're going to be a good advisor. And there are a lot of elements of working with foreign cultures, foreign forces that are almost counter to the idea of being a good Marine. Where I remember as a platoon commander, as an XO in a weapons company, I had NCOs who I would go to the grave saying, you can have my back whenever you want who wouldn't have meshed with a foreign culture because they were used to the Marine Corps mentality of, I'm gonna tell you what to do and you're gonna execute. Absolute blind, receptive acceptance of, of orders. And what we talked about a lot in ATC was that won't necessarily lead to success with advisors. And that's the unique aspect of working as an advisor is even as a captain talking to what the Georgians would call a private, I couldn't task that private. I couldn't legally say, you do this and you are obliged to do this. Everything as an advisor is based on rapport and the relationships you have with those forces you're advising because you can't legally tell them to do anything where they are obligated to do it. And that's a lot of the soft skill that those other three weeks at ATC, or excuse me, at uh, the basic advisor course that we worked on. Things of, hey, it's not a, so much a direction, it's an ongoing negotiation. And how do you influence those people who are advising to do what you wanna do? And uh, I, I mentioned it before, but speaking through an interpreter, it seems like a straightforward thing to do, but gauging the proficiency of an interpreter is a tremendous key to success because not everyone is wildly proficient. So if a U.S. Marine is talking nonstop, expecting an interpreter to be translating midstream and not recognizing the fact that that interpreter doesn't have a full grasp of English, him or herself, Everything that Marine says hasn't quite gotten over to the Georgian to whom he's speaking. And just understanding how to speak a sentence, look the interpreter in the eyes, engage, hey, did you understand what I was saying? Or eh, maybe I have to approach this a different way, use some different word choices. It, it, it's a little thing but it's a little thing that dictated success or failure while we were out on patrol and operation with the Georgians. Yep. How much time did you spend learning about Georgian culture and how much did you spend any time uh, learning, learning the language? We spent a fair amount of time actually during our four weeks in Virginia Beach at the basic advisor course actually receiving lessons in Georgian culture and Georgian language. 
Now, it certainly wasn't enough to be proficient, but it was enough to gain proficiency to levels that we showed we cared. Where I don't think any of the Georgians expected us to come in fluent in Kartuli, which is the Georgian national language, but it was enough where we could say, hello, how are you? Thank you. Nice to meet you. So it was, it, we're demonstrating, we're crossing that initial divide of, hey, who are these Americans here telling me what to do? And we're crossing that initial reluctance to, and that kind of pride and, and barrier that was established. It was enough to say, like, okay, these guys, yeah, they don't speak my language, but they clearly care. They've learned some basics. So, but you were in a unique position or somewhat unique position where you were advising foreign troops who were in turn advising foreign troops. How much time did, in preparation did you have to, to deal with uh, the Afghan soldiers? None, none at all. We didn't know when we left California, because our Georgian deployment program, our, our team, we were the first ones to assume the mission that the Georgian deployment program now has, which is base defense in, in Bagram. Prior to that, the Georgian deployment program had been involved in Helmand province, briefly in Kandahar, but we were the first ones to assume the mission up in Parwan province in Bagram. We had no idea where we were going. So the idea that we would be advising Afghans was a foreign concept to us. We didn't learn that until we were about two weeks out from wrapping up our time in Georgia and our pre-deployment site survey, our, our PDSS, went over to Afghanistan and actually finally realized, okay, this is what our mission is going to be. And at that point in time, we realized, yes, technically the Georgians are going to be advising an Afghan Kandak or battalion, but in reality, it was the Marines that were doing it. So the, the Marines over there were advising and serving as liaisons between the Georgians and their higher U.S. Army headquarters, but also serving as advisors and trainers to the Afghans. And that's something we learned far too late into the, um, I mean, it wasn't even the training program at that point in time. It was into the, the deployment. Okay. So I want to look into the, into the book here a little bit. And you have a, you had a great quote that in here just about the, the cultural or the challenges involved in, in culture and, it was, and, here, and, I'll, and I'll read the quote in full here. I realized very clearly that moving forward with training and our time in Afghanistan, one of the GLT Marines' most critical roles would be serving as cultural go-betweens with our Georgian partners and other U.S. units, explaining, facilitating, and where necessary, defending the 51st GLIB. Is this the proper role, you think, of, of an advisor? Yeah, so I've kind of explained somewhat facetiously, but also seriously, the role of being an advisor is a little like being a big brother, where as a big brother, you can knock your little brother around as much as you want, but nobody else is going to do it. And that was kind of what we came around to, where we'd have tremendous frustrations with the Georgians we were working with. But... Nobody else better say anything about him. So we served as that liaison, both cultural and language-wise, between not only the Georgians who, or excuse me, the Georgians, not only the U.S. Army higher headquarters that we fell under, the Army Task Force, uh, 
but the civilian contractors on base are lateral. We had Nepalese contractors, we had Czech security forces, we had Jordanians, we had Aussies, all of those individuals. We were the ones who were sort of the buffers ensuring that let's make sure this is smooth a process as possible. Because the Georgians are very prideful people. And that's something we learned pretty early in our time in Georgia as well, where if we looked at something that didn't quite make sense tactically, if I pulled a Georgian aside and said, hey, that was wrong, I was getting nowhere because I'd get nothing but excuses and pushback. So what I kind of settled on is the phrase, hey, that's one way to do it. So I knew I couldn't say that something was wrong just because the immense pride that they had in their operations. So it was the, hey, that's one way to do it, but here's how we would do it as U.S. Marines. And that was a great way to kind of bridge the gap between their pride and what we wanted to get them to do. And really that's how it unfolded in Afghanistan as well, where we, we couldn't necessarily say you're wrong because I said it before, we couldn't tell them what to do. We had no legal authority to task them. So everything that we wanted them to do was 100% dependent upon rapport and the relationships we had. So we had to A, demonstrate that we were tactically competent enough to listen to, and then B, that we cared enough about them that, yes, they should have a vested interest in listening to us. And that, that came down to the idea of, Hey, it's one way to do it. It's interesting to do it. Hey, here's how we would do it. And that kind of bridged the gap and ensured that the Georgians got to the point, hey, you know, these guys have you've been blown up with us. They've trained with us. Um, maybe we ought to listen to them. Right. Well, when I was in Afghanistan in 2013 and I had uh, some contact with, with some of the Georgian forces in Helmand province, and with the the Brits and and who, who God knows who else because there were a lot of there were a lot of different countries in there. Uh, did you notice anything? Well, back up. They all had their different motivations for being there, and they, as in their their governments that sent them there, had different motivations for having their troops in Afghanistan. Did you notice any any issues about that? Uh, where was anybody working at cross purposes? Was there any undue friction for the overall mission because of that? The Georgian Ministry of Defense is a tremendously frustrating institution to work with. Nepotism and corruption are rampant. And we dealt with that more in the training aspect than we did deployed, where our Georgian battalion commander was a rock star. He, if he was in charge of a battalion of Marines, he could have stormed the gates of hell. Just a phenomenal individual. But he was also beholden to the realities of the Georgian Ministry of Defense and the individuals who controlled his future. And we had to deal with that in training, really with our time in, in Germany where we did our mission reversal exercise of, hey, these are the things we should be working on. And then the response from the Georgian side of, ah, we, we get that, but here's what we have to do because of the realities of 
the Georgian MOD. And where that really bit us hard was with the Georgian military interpreters, the Milterps. During our three months in Georgia, we spent a bunch of time evaluating potential candidates who would serve as the Milterps to deploy with us. They have a language school over there, for lack of better terms, analogous to our, our Monterey, where they sent different troops to learn English or German, depending on who the Georgians were working with. So we'd get students from that school who'd come and train with us Tuesday through Thursday. So it gave us very good insight of, hey, who's proficient, who's not, who just couldn't work as an interpreter. So we put a lot of time and effort into figuring out who do we recommend to actually come to Afghanistan with us. So we coordinated that list. We talked with our Georgian battalion commander. He was 100% on board with it, submitted it to the Georgian MOD. Fast forward to Germany right before we're about to deploy. And almost to the line of the people we said, these, these people can't come. They don't speak English. Those are the ones who ended up deploying with us. And it, it took a delicate response because our Georgian counterpart could not write explain because they were also beholden the Ministry of Defense. But really what it came down to is, hey, going on this deployment for Georgians is a tremendous milestone on their career paths. And because of that, getting onto it isn't necessarily a product, especially on the interpreter side, isn't necessarily a product of proficiency so much as who you know. So we got hit pretty hard in the face with nepotism in terms of the incompetence of a lot of the Terps who went downrange with us who, who really had no right being there. So looking back on it now, after being back here for a couple of years and even transitioning out of the Marine Corps, what do you think about your time in Afghanistan? Do you think you were successful? Do you think you accomplished what, what you set out to do? So I'm going to have to divide that into two questions. So I, in the bigger picture with regard to Afghanistan, I look at it like I look at a football game. So we know who wins a football game because if at the end of four quarters you have more points at the other team, you've won. So there's a definition of winning because there's an objective to the game. In Afghanistan, there's no objective because we've never been given a clearly defined political objective to achieve by our government. So how can you win a game that doesn't have an objective outcome? So in the big picture, I'd say, no, we're the country of Afghanistan was no better off when we got there and or when we left than when we got there. So big picture, that was a tremendous frustration. That's a lot of the frustration that comes out in my book. But on the other hand, in terms of the pride I had leaving there in terms of the tactical and technical development and competence of the Georgians was night and day different. We arrived in Georgia, or excuse me, in Afghanistan in September 2014, and I didn't even want the Georgians leaving the wire. By the time we left at the end of April 2015, we were doing more complicated tactical operations than I ever in a million years would have anticipated. So in terms of the tremendous amount of pride and the developments, both the Marine advisors and the Georgians we worked with, 
unbelievable, more than I could have hoped for in terms of our impact and the overall situation in Afghanistan is inconsequential. What about with uh, the Afghan forces with whom you worked? Same. A tremendous level of respect for the Afghans we worked with and for the tactical development of uh, the partner Kandakar battalion that we worked with. They were actually military police, so they weren't trained to be patrolling like infantry troops, but the commander said, hey, we want to support you. This is our area. We want to defend this base because rockets are equal opportunity killers. You know, there's, If they hit the Afghans on base, the Georgians, or the Americans, or the contractors, it's, we're all vulnerable to it. So he recognized that and wanted to go out and patrol. So in terms of the tactical development, unbelievable. We implemented a training program and taught small unit tactics to the platoon level leaders, both senior enlisted and junior officers amongst the the Afghans we worked with. And the development was phenomenal, but it also comes down to inconsequential just because of the fact that the failures of their logistics system make it irrelevant. Where once the Americans leave, they're not going to have the fuel, they're not going to have the weapons, they're not going to have the replacement parts to go out and do what they need to do. Now, looking back on your experiences, back from Afghanistan for a couple of years, you've taken the time to reflect on your experiences and you've written a book. And we'll go back to your, your preparations for, for this mission, for this role. If you had it to do all over again with all the knowledge and experience you have now, how would you change your pre-deployment preparation? So the most glaring deficiencies both in our time stateside, just preparing as an advisor team, and our time in Georgia, where we were embedded with the Georgians, training with them, where they were preparing to deploy, was a complete and utter lack of patrolling platform instruction and practical application. That's what we were doing. That was our mission overseas. We were defending a base, and we are doing it by patrolling. We are counter IDF, so preventing rocket attacks against the base. But bottom line, we were patrolling and that was our mission. And there was just no training for it on either the ATC, PTP, the pre-deployment training program, or when we were in Georgia. So what I would do is provide actual platform instruction, both stateside for the Marines in sort of a train the trainer capacity but also building more time into the Georgian training program as well, because the Georgian training program is a product of U.S. forces developing something, and it just lacks creativity, it lacks imagination, lacks a recognition of what they were actually going to be doing, where it's this can-jammed TNR manual of, well, this is what you need to do, check these boxes, without really looking at the mission. So prime example, when we were stateside, we didn't have any time built into actually patrolling with our advisor team just to focus on ensuring that our advisors were competent and proficient in patrolling skills. So during our week-long combat marksmanship program shoot, we were staying out in the field and we'd shoot all day. And we as a team early on said, we have to use this time. We're out in the field. Nobody's going home to the families tonight. We're already crashing out here. We might as well take advantage of this. So we'd shoot all day and patrol all night because we needed that instruction where the infantry Marines who would be outside of the wire in Afghanistan would be out patrolling. And then the non-infantry analysis who would be in the combat operations center, the COC battle tracking in Afghanistan, did the same things out on the range in Pendleton for us. So we did that there. 
but then we just lacked that ability to have that practical application in Georgia. So what that meant for me is the operations officer planning both our deliberate operations and security patrols in Afghanistan was I had to look at our first few months in Afghanistan as a continuation of our training program where we weren't prepared to conduct the tactically complex operations we would need to, to successfully defend the base when we first arrived. So each week as I planned operations and planned patrols, I needed to incrementally increase the tactical complexity and kind of build upon a foundation where a week into our time patrolling, we're hit by a suicide bomber, but I still had to look at that first amount of time as, hey, this has got to be training for us because we're not where we need to be. Okay. So you're out of the Marine Corps now. You, uh, you've written this book, but this isn't all you're doing. Your, your website looks like it's a, it's a bigger project than just trying to, to sell copies of the book. Can you, can you describe the, the, the bigger mission that you have there? Yeah, the book almost wasn't a product of saying, I want to write a book. It was a natural byproduct of catharsis and me dealing with tremendous amounts of anger and frustration. While, while we were in Afghanistan, I, I, I dealt with an almost overwhelming amount of anger and frustration about basically why are we there? and the significant frustration of the restrictions we have on us and putting our guys' lives on the line day in and day out. And it almost became overwhelming. It, but I also knew I had to focus on bringing our guys home alive. So what I turned to was journaling, where I spend a little bit every day when I was particularly frustrated, I just jot some notes down in the journal and then I throw it into a drawer. Fast forward, I eventually get home Journals kind of tucked away in a deployment bag somewhere or other. And I realized pretty quickly that I still had some, some real anger that I would have to come to terms with eventually. So I started looking back in the journal and started writing. And you fast forward three years and I've completed manuscript that ends up getting published. But it was not because I said, I want to write a book. It was because I said, I need to deal with these emotions one way or the other. And there can be toxic ways that I deal with them, or I could look at it in a more productive way. And I saw writing as a productive way to, to deal with it and to provide me a level of catharsis and therapeutic release that I couldn't have gotten otherwise in a, like I said, a, a productive way. So having said all that, I realized very clearly writing is one positive, productive outlet for veterans dealing with tremendous amounts of anger and with as easy as Google makes it to start a website, I said, let's look to create an opportunity for other people who want to write and use it as an outlet. Because I've been pulled out by a ton of people and it means a lot to me saying, hey, what you've written, the anger that comes out in your story, I feel it too. I just never quite knew how to express it. So I started, it. it's basically a blog where if anyone who served is dealing with any level of stress and frustration, whether it's from a combat deployment or just general frustrations of the military, it's an opportunity for you to be able to write and submit your story to let your voice be heard. And that's really the, the genesis of that blog is, is that I hope that 
the catharsis that I felt and received from writing this book that I can provide to other people. And if you fast forward five years from now, no vets have submitted any writings to the blog, hey, it, I don't lose anything. It's still there. And I, I'm just glad that people know it's an opportunity. If you want to write to get some sense of relief from the anger and frustration you feel, it exists. Okay. Well, I'll definitely add a, add a link to it in the show notes, but why don't you go ahead and, and give a plug for the website? Yes. www.newministryoftruth.us. And it outlines submission procedures. And we're not looking for Hemingway. We're just looking for vets who have some emotion that they want to want to deal with. Again, we're going to have much more on this subject in the months to come. But for now, you can learn more about military reform, find links to what we've discussed, and leave us comments by visiting our website at pogo.org strauss. There you can also learn about our other investigations and efforts to make the military more ethical and effective at a significantly lower cost. Please click like on our Facebook page at the Project on Government Oversight. You can follow us on Twitter at at Dan underscore Grazier and at Strauss Reform. In order to preserve our independence, POGO does not knowingly accept contributions from anyone who stands to benefit financially from our work. If you would like to get involved and help POGO and the Center for Defense Information's work promoting an effective, open, and affordable government, please consider making a donation. Just click on the red donation icon at the top of our homepage. I'm Dan Grazier, the Jack Shanahan Military Fellow here at the Center for Defense Information at POGO. Please stay tuned as we will continue to help you navigate the Pentagon Labyrinth.